couple of things I wanted to highlight uh, that we have coming up, and uh, your app is fully updated, the website is fully updated, but we have some exciting things. I would love for you to just go through and mark all your personal calendars because these are things that I want to partner with you in prayer. And then I want you to be thinking about who is it that <clears throat> would be uh, open to coming to this. We want to make faith and community accessible, which is why we do our church's lab the first weekend of every month. We also want to have a laboratory to practice our faith like hospitality and generosity and compassion. If you were part of last weekend, you were part of really special time down at Community First Village, having worship and dinner and so many great, great conversations with people. But we have an event coming up to celebrate our fourth year anniversary. So we want to party like a four-year-old. Uh, and rather than just giving ourselves a pat on the back saying, yay, us, we are set aside $2,000. This is not a fundraiser event. So when you invite people, make sure they understand we're not coming to, they're not coming just for us to ask them for money to give away. We have $2,000 set aside from our Good Neighbor Fund that we're going to be awarding three local, very bootstrapping nonprofits that are doing well to love our neighbors. This is kind of an exciting event. One, you get to learn about some of the neat things people are doing, like as a side hustle, because they can because they have an opportunity, because they have a skill set. And it's just inspiring to hear people who are in the midst of parenting small kids or uh, have full careers, that they're just choosing to, to serve the margins. Um, and so uh, we're really excited about this. It's at Styles and & Switch, and so you can go online and, and register now. It's $20. There's space for about 75 people in a private room. If you haven't had Styles & Switch, it's sort of Franklin's brisket without the line. I mean, it's, it's good stuff. I hope I don't think you're like, oh, Sunday just oversold it there. But no, it's legitimately good. Uh, <clears throat> and then uh, the other thing I wanted to highlight is we have a very exciting ladies retreat coming up April 3rd through the 5th. This is returning to Log Country Cove to Coyote Moon. There's space for 30 women. Uh, well, actually, there's 25 sign-up spaces available. We have a guest speaker. My friend Irene Fambro, who uh, we've spent years knowing, is going to come in and give some spiritual direction. This will be a time of renewal, of friendship, uh, <clears throat> all together. There, with getting to just be a friend, getting to be a child of God, getting to just be uh, who you are without sort of the mothering, parenting responsibilities. And so I would love, love, love for you to set aside time to do that. It's $120. You can sign up online. If you have a buddy you'd like to bring and bunk with, you can do that as well. But space is limited to 25 people. So kind of be thinking, be inviting, but be planning. That same weekend, guys, got you covered especially if you're like <clears throat> single parenting for the weekend as moms go away. So we have uh, a miniature golf event down at Peter Pan with some uh, um, P. Terry's. And so you have a Saturday event. So you're good, taken care of. Uh, well, one of the things that I love doing that I can't find from being on like the media is I love finding out what God is doing around the globe. And you've heard me talk about different things that I, I get really inspired by because one of the things I feel like we're called to do is pray for the persecuted church. 
we're also supposed to be sort of, when things happen across the world, that's not just their problem, it stinks to be them. But I think these are some of the things that uh, we're connected by. But when I hear about the the, the church in Iran, uh, that's one of the fastest growing movements of God around the world, and it's led primarily by women, that gets me really excited, especially in light of what I hear going on in the Middle East. Or, or the Free Burma Rangers, which we have a premiere showing uh, of, of this group of, of, of militia that are trained to just be sort of save the victims uh, and what God is doing through the Free Burma or, or the underground church in China. There's all these movements of God that are really exciting. I was listening to a podcast this week. I listened to a couple of different ones, and um, there's this one guy in particular that is super well-read. He's a really strong Christian, uh, really interesting to listen to, a great cultural commentator, but he was describing this experience that he had at Wildfires Festival. It's a music, Christian music festival in, in England, in the kind of south, in the Sussex area of England. And while he was there, a Nigerian bishop came over to pray with him. Uh, and none of the sort of Western leaders, whether they be from the, the UK or whether they be from America or whether they be from Australia, none of, no one really knew about this Nigerian bishop. But he came and they started to learn about him. The only reason he came to, the, to this group of leaders was to pray for them. And you're like, you came all this way? And he's like, yeah, that's kind of what I do. Okay. Turns out this guy in Nigeria, of which half the country, the southern half is, is, is dominantly, predominantly Christian, the northern half is predominantly Muslim, but in the southern half, they've got such a Christian fervor for Christ that every month he has a million people gather for a prayer meeting. <laughs> Haven't heard that in Fox News. CNN's not reporting on that. Well, it turns out this guy came to London because there's 40,000 people that wanted to have a prayer meeting. He flew over for that occasion. But so this cultural commentator, this podcaster by the name of Mark Sayers was saying like, okay, I'm, I'm all interested. And the guy goes on to say, yeah, we do an annual prayer vigil and we get three to four million people to show up for our prayer. Friends, if, if I called a prayer meeting, it, it would be lucky if we'd get a small group. I mean, that's just not something that just sort of inspires us. In fact, in our Western construct, when you get there on Facebook and some hurricane hits and you're like, oh, thoughts and prayers, people are like, you don't really care. That's nonsense. That's inaction. Except that when you're from a non-Western culture and you're offering prayer, that stuff works. It's amazing to see what God's doing around the world. And so I love, love, love tuning in and going, oh my gosh, God's at work all around the world. And it's really important for us to look outside of our Western context. Now, this guy, Mark Sayers, asked the Nigerian bishop and he asked him, he says, tell me a little bit about what you're doing. And he says, well, a hundred years ago, the West was so committed to sending out the gospel that everyone, whether it be from England or from America, they were sending out missionaries all across the globe. But something's changed within the West. You know what's changed? Consumerism, individualism. We're not sending out anymore. And so he says, a hundred years later, I feel like it's my turn to return the favor. So he's praying for Western leaders. And I think that's one of the big shifts that is happening in our culture is that this kind of Western dominance, this Western affluence has crippled us 
into nationalism. So what Donald Trump got elected on. America first. We're not supposed to be the world's police. No, but what are we supposed to do to steward our wealth and our abundance and our resources for our benefit or for the least of these? Hopefully our citizenship in heaven trumps, literally trumps, our citizenship to the United States. But that's exciting for me to hear, but it's also convicting for me to hear. Now, I read another study. I was listening to this uh, report on boredom, and there was a, a, a professor at the University of Virginia uh, by the name of uh, Timothy Wilson, and Timothy Wilson conducted a study on boredom. Do you talk about this with your kids? Is this your conversation? Can you have, uh, can you sit at a red light with not, without glancing at your phone? Friends, we have a shortening, diminishing attention span. So this guy does a study, and he collects students, he collects graduates, he collects community members. Whoever wanted to participate in this study, they were given a sort of opportunity to sit in an enclosed room. And the, and the room had nothing going on around it, uh, and they were si just to be alone for 15 minutes with their own thoughts. And he kind of had a couple of different levels. Would you rather do this or do this? Or, but then he took it to another level. For 15 minutes, you had the choice to sit there alone with your thoughts, to gather your thoughts, maybe to organize your thoughts, to think about your day, to think about your week, to think, to do whatever. Maybe just to have a rest or to electrocute yourself. And this wasn't this the touch your tongue to the nine volt battery thing. This was like a good jolt. What do you think the percentages were of people? Who, the percentage for women was 25% of women chose to shock themselves rather than sit for 15 minutes. It was a little higher for men. 70% of men chose like a hurtful shock than sitting for 15 minutes in a quiet moment, an uninterrupted moment, to resist the idea of being bored. Nope, I'm going to see what I can take. You know, I mean, just, I don't know, like, let's do this. What is going on? See, I'm convinced that we have this idea that we're, we're, we are so bad at waiting. We are so bad at being still, which is also a really concerning thing when it comes to having a growth plan for how to grow in our personal spiritual lives. Because without any kind of examination, without any kind of reflection, we are going to fail to yield to the promptings, the direction, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to be present in our whole lives if most of our lives is about resisting stillness and waiting. I think we used to be concerned about hypocrisy. I think now we're just concerned about not being bored. And yet we're missing, I think, the promptings and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so that being said, anyone make any New Year's resolutions? Anyone give yourself uh, any goals for this year? Did you allow yourself any still moments to just do some goal setting or planning? Don't answer out loud. But I imagine we all feel a little hopeful. Like, wouldn't it be neat if this happened this year? But in large part, we're not great at setting up goals and, and sort of a, a, a game plan to grow. In fact, have you ever heard someone talk about a New Year's resolution in July? 
That's not part of the conversation. It's sort of something that you don't really hear get mentioned after three weeks into the new year. And so this is what I want to talk about at the outset of a new year, um, about the ability for us to resolve in our own hearts to love. Why love? Because I never hear anyone talking about, you know, this year, I want to grow in love. Usually it's a self-help thing. Usually it's a self-improvement thing, which are great and needed, whether it be more discipline or weight loss or, you know, whatever, personal study, whatever the case. I think those are wonderful. But here's the thing. If we are to be formed further into God's image, that's not going to be like winning the lottery. That's not going to be like your number got called. That's going to be something that's cultivated by what we give our heart and our mind toward. And it doesn't happen without a plan, and it doesn't happen without a community. So I got to thinking, what would it mean to grow in God's love? Now, God's love is always outward in focus. The difference between lust or love is that one is self-serving, one is self-gratifying, one is self-pleasing, the other is outward. And think about God's love and all the scripture you know around that, all the attributes you know. God's love, he sent his son for us. God forgives us. God provides for us. God extends his mercy. His grace is sufficient. There is something about the nature of God's love that it's always outward. And so part of what we need to do to sort of un-Americanize ourselves and grow in Christian faith is to think about the nature of God's love and how I can resemble that a little bit more. It, it doesn't feel natural because honestly, I, I get in instinctively sort of me first. Instinctively, I, 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 I tap the brakes and I get cautious. I don't want to be made too vulnerable. I don't, I don't want to be too disappointed. And yet God is trying to teach us what God is like. And I start to think, man, is this how you feel, Lord? Are you this disappointed in me? Like I get disappointed in others when I feel like maybe I've outgiven. Maybe I've out whatever. And he's like, you, you wanna, how far do you want to take this? I gave my son. I'm like, you win. But this is the picture. So uh, I think so many people are sort of bored or uninspired by faith. They're bored by the church that it's only until we kind of hit a moment of crisis that it shocks our system because of maybe like a crisis or a tragedy or, or because a holiday tradition that it gets us back into the kind of the faith thought process. And I would rather cultivate a way to live, uh, a plan for a personal spiritual development. So that's what got me thinking about what would it mean for us to commit together, to, to be a part of a church. I know we already are sort of in community together, but I want to be able to affirm it. I want to be able to spell it out. I want to be able to create what feels like a spiritual fitness plan. Now, if you're like me, you've grown up around church your whole life. And maybe you haven't. 
But around me, there was always something for those who were going to be really committed, and you joined the church. You got your letter. You became a member. The problem with membership for me is multi-layered, and over the next month, I'm going to repeat myself, and I want to talk about this a lot, because I want to paint a picture for what I think is going to be unique about Mission Hills. Membership, to me, implies that there's insiders and outsiders. And in a Western construct, it's hard, because when you're the church, people come to you like you're a mall or their favorite restaurant for religious goods and services. And yet that doesn't actually produce disciples. What we need to be is for people to come realizing that my life is not my own. So what I want to think about is a new way of thinking about membership. I also think that when I've watched people be a member for years, it sometimes, not always, produces a level of entitlement or a higher level of expectation well, I've been a member here, this is my pew. <laughs> I've been a member here for years and years and years. I think when we commit to something, it should produce something. I've seen, and again, I've worked at large churches where this is especially true, but once you sign on the dotted line, it's a static commitment. It's sort of like there's no follow-up, there's no accountability, and there's nothing there to say it's active and growing. And so one of the things that I want to create are renewable vows, something that we covenant together every year, maybe at this time of year, where we say, before God and each other, this will be my investment in this community. Because life happens at breakneck speed. And so it seems to me that we should be able to recalibrate and readjust as we go and as we grow. So, the nature of covenant as opposed to membership, because I want to talk about being in covenant at Mission Hills community. When you're in covenant, see, the Hebrews had a thought. They didn't think about it as me and God. They thought about it as communal, us before God. And I would like to think about being a part of a larger group of people that is dependent on me, and I am depending on you. And, and as we approach being in covenant, what we're really doing is making sort of commitments and promises one to another, but before God that allows us to have an active and a growing faith. <clears throat> and so over the next few weeks, I want to talk about how we're going to resolve to love. Today, it's talking about simply how we love one another. That is an inward commitment, a vow that we take in community. Not just because we're familiar faces, not just because we know each other or, or we've done a couple events, but we're actually walking together in support of one another. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, uh, having sort of a love for others and what does that mean for our rhythms of compassion and hospitality and how we view those beyond our walls. And then the third week, we're going to look at what it means to love God in sort of our generosity and kind of this vow of faith. Um, and then uh, when we come back from the pitch on February 7th, this is going to be Covenant Sunday, where it's what I'm calling I Do Sunday. And you'll have a chance to just say, are, are you going to be in covenant with us? The thing about membership is it doesn't have any privileges. I'd like to think that in American culture, if you became a member of something, it sort of deepens your commitment. But be honest, Members leave churches as much as attenders leave churches. It doesn't create a more solidified commitment unless they've given a lot to a building project and they feel like, well, I can't leave now. I just paid for that building, which is a direct quote. 
Uh, and so what, what I'm talking about is something that germinates within us a growing level of God's affection for one another and faith towards him. Does that make sense? So uh, the first thing I want to just look at as we talk about what does it mean to love one another? That is, how do we learn to be in community? If you have your Bibles, look at the book of Ruth. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of Ruth. Uh, there's just a couple of verses that I want to get to, but the story of Ruth is a fascinating one, and there's so much beauty in it. There's so much depth in it. Back off of that for just a second. Um, who's doing that? Um, and uh, um, uh, what I would say is, th here's the story of Ruth. You can go, and it's worth reading. It's not a long book, but it's a beautiful book because you have this famine in Israel. And so there's a family, um, and the mom and the dad have two sons, and they take a journey down to Moab because, well, there's no food in the land. So we got to go to where the food is. There's no welfare plan. There's no sort of governmental services. There's no social providers that would do this. So you pick up and go to where the food is. They get down to Moab, and they start raising their two boys, and the two boys marry. Now, the mom is Naomi. And one of the boys marries Ruth. The other boy marries Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, no relation. But we have a picture of these three women. Well, all three of the men die in Moab. Two of them, um, or excuse me, one of them is an immigrant. So that's a double whammy. If you're an immigrant and you're a widow, you have now taken a just a crash course with poverty. You have zero rights. You have zero ability to earn a living, to, to, to feed yourself. And she is completely vulnerable. But she's got these two daughters-in-law, uh, and she turns to them and says, you two, go back to Moab. Just stay there, because you're young enough, you can remarry. No one's going to want to remarry me, but I'm at least going to go back to Israel and go to my people. And that's when Ruth, now Orpah, she kind of says, well, no, and she goes, well, okay, I'll do it, and she takes off, but Ruth sees Naomi as her own. Ruth sees her problem, like, no, 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 we're, we're family. I, I mean, we weren't born in the same family, but we're in community, and I'm not going to let you just go off and figure this on your own. I'm not going to let you shoulder this by yourself, and she says these words and, and says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. <laughs> okay. This isn't just, how do I get my needs met? She's saying, I'm with you, and you're in a more vulnerable place than me. Yeah, we both lost our husbands. Yes, I'm younger than you, but I'm not going to let you go through this alone. And they go back to Israel alone, and now she's the one that's now not only a widow, but an immigrant. Two of the most vulnerable, marginalized classifications a person could have but it was only until she got back there that God began to provide and there's a third character in the book of of Ruth called Boaz and Boaz was actually a distant relative and called a kinsman redeemer it's this beautiful story but he ends up marrying her and 
he was not only a wealthy man, but a, a, a generous, high character guy. Beautiful story. Interesting thing, side note, if you're going to read Ruth, notice there's no mention of God because God is being made known in how people are living in community with one another. Fascinating, but brilliant. And so he tells the story of God's incarnation without actually saying, the Lord said, never actually came up. So um, I would encourage you to read the book of Ruth. But what I love about this picture that we have is that you have this kind of commitment one to another. I have to say, I grew up in a church where my mom's family and my dad's family were in this church. It wasn't a huge church, maybe about 400 people. And it was so neat when you walk in because you're immediately accepted as one of our own. Now, there's some other things that come with it. You have a whole lot of aunties and uncles that want to be your parent too. And they have the ability and the authority to speak into your life. But the beauty is when you walk into the room, you're already accepted as one of us. There's something really emotionally developmental about that. And so I grew up with large extended family. Except that when I became a parent, I never afforded my kids that. We, we moved to Alabama. They were born in Alabama. We, we moved back for three years. When we were four and six, we moved to Austin. And they've not grown up with aunts and uncles, grandma and grandpa, cousins, that live anywhere near here. It's always a plane flight away. And while we have some neat relationships, we don't get to share our lives together. But here's the thing that makes a difference. We can't imagine our lives without certain people because how God has raised up. So when I have my friends, Bill and Connie, they feel like family because they were the emergency contact when the kids were sick at school or we couldn't. I mean, there has been people in the body of Christ that have been for us a kind of family and says, your problems are our problems. Your deficits are our problems. Your sickness is my sickness. Here's a meal. Let us take your kids. This is what it means, I think, to be an extended family of faith. But this is what it means to be in community. Community gets soft-pedaled as, oh, we know each other. We're familiar with each other. We say hi to each other. I know your name. I'm talking about a depth of community that says, no, no, no. Your problems are my problems. I ache when you ache. And if you ask me to pray, I'm going to be praying for you. This is what I, uh, this, uh, Mark Sayer says. He was doing this it's a podcast called This Cultural Moment. But he said this, and again, he's referring to the West. In our abundance, we live with too much freedom. We live without enough boundary. And then he says, but the anecdote to freedom is commitment. We love our freedoms. We consider them inalienable rights. But maybe what we need more of is a stronger commitment to give ourselves to something so that we can actually have more boundary. And I'm just inviting you to say yes to a community of people that you'll be invested in.
Viktor Frankl, in his book, Man's Search for Meeting, he, he talked about people who are able to survive under duress. And so you think about people who went through concentration camps or POWs or something like this. And he says, the people who came under the greatest persecutions, um, the, they weren't the smartest, they weren't the fittest, the most educated, the most conservative, or the most progressive. The ones who came through those times were the ones who lived with the most meaning. There was something substantive about their life. Community requires that not just a shared interest or a life stage, but where we serve one another as part of a larger effort and well-being. You want to survive life? You want to, you want to wade through the difficulty that is parenting or difficult bosses or dry marriage? Be in community. Don't do it alone. This idea of independence gets really overrated. This idea of freedom gets really abused. And I'm just inviting you to be in covenant with people so you aren't trying to live as the center of your own life. Now, what I love is when you go into the New Testament, you have this very stout, very clear picture of what it means to be in community. And in the New Testament, we have over 50 one another's how to be the church. These aren't suggestions. These are actually commands on how you're supposed to operate in the church. And I can only imagine what it was like in the early church when there's no sort of paid staff. There's people that are just gathering together and they're, they're coming in and, and they're not sort of consumers. They worked all day. They're raising kids. They're taking care of aging parents because there's no hospice or, or, or sort of you know, geriatric care. It's on the family but they're trying to build God's kingdom in the early church. And they're talking about what it means to love one another. And let me just give you a sampling. Be devoted to one another. Don't hobby with one another. Honor one another above yourselves. See, now, as you hear these commands, consider how you might have been trained with the church. One of the things that concerns me is that the way we do church has become this holding place for believers, a holding tank for converts, but not necessarily something that requires us to love the community, love one another at any sacrificial level. I want to learn to love like God loves. But part of our discipleship in Christ is learning uh, how to do that. And then he says, instruct one another, Romans 15. Well, you're like, I don't have the gift of teaching. Yeah, but there's stuff in your head. There's ways that you can teach. Um, it's, it's telling us we need to instruct one another. Serve one another in love. So beyond what you feel gifted to or, or motivated, there's lots of stuff I do around Mission Hills I don't feel good at and I don't feel motivated by. So we all have gifts and we all have roles. It's called family. I don't feel gifted at taking out the trash at home, but guess who does it the most? Me. I... I don't love fixing stuff that breaks. And our house was built in 1985. I fix stuff regularly. I don't always feel gifted at that, motivated by that. But this is the same picture of what it means to be in community as a church. Carry 
one another's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. See, unless you're in community, and I'm talking about small group, I'm talking about a standing appointment where you're not just listening to me talk, but you're sharing your experiences in like a tribe setting, in a living room setting, where you're entering a deeper level of dialogue, you are not gonna be able to carry one another burden, and yet that's not a suggestion in scripture. That's not just a good idea. Stop living as an independent or in isolation. And he says, be kind and compassionate toward one another, forgiving each other just as God forgave you. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We have this vivid picture of what it means and how to be in community. And so now you start to see what the expectation is. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, I got to tell you, this is why I finally said yes to starting a church. Because if you've heard me talk, you know I did not feel like I ever needed to be a senior pastor. And I did not feel like I ever wanted to start a church. But what I wanted to do was create a community that would be committed to disciple making. We learn a language for faith, how to talk about it. We learn how to live it, a practice through rhythms. And we learn how to pass it on to those closest to us. I want you to grow in your ability and your confidence to do that. But my desire was simply to create a disciple-making community who understands that in order to gain your life, you, you, you got to lose it. That's like, that was, that was Christ on the cross for us. So to hold faith, a faith in Christ intersects with every area of our personal life. And any experience that you have with God now becomes a stewardship issue. Because you can't unexperience an experience with God. You can't unlearn something you've learned from God. You can't unsee, unhear, or uncomfort what God has done for you. So who are you giving that to? See, this is what it means to be in community. And in a large part, we're already doing this. But I want you to have a clear understanding of what we've been called to and how to actually be the church. Now, I have this sort of dilemma that I'm faced with is I want to grow the church. I don't want to be a large church, but I think there's more people that are limping along and could use what we have. And it's really easy to get your identity tied up in the success of your church. How big's your church? Well, not that big but I sure love what we get to do. I sure love the latitude. I, I sure love what God is doing in the lives of people. Let me tell you this. I try and use this metric, this non-numeric metric on how to evaluate my church, the church that God has called me to lead. And here's what it is. It simply spells out, and some of you know this, faith, the faith of a disciple. So if I look at someone and I can evaluate how are they doing in these areas, I want you to consider how am I doing in some of these areas? Because for years, I consumed everything that the church had to offer. I consumed children's church and I consumed youth choir and youth camp and youth retreat. I consumed all that the church had and it was good. It laid a wonderful foundation. And then when I was about 22 years old, a guy started deciding me and he says there's this picture of I'm not so concerned about what you know because you know a lot of Bible stories you've been raised in the church you have some good sort of parameters some foundation I'm concerned David that you know how to give it away oh well no one's ever challenged me to do that and then he painted this picture for 
faith. It's an acrostic. Forgive me if you are just cringe at filling in the blanks, but go ahead and fill in the blanks if you have an outline. But it talks about being faithful. Is there a consistency in which you're able to not just show up, but to give yourselves to the ministry and to the people? Faithfulness, David. Can you be faithful? Or are you simply going to consume when it's most convenient? This was really, because I was attending large churches where it was really easy. I could, I could not show up and not be missed. I could be anonymous, available. So are you willing to make yourself available to say yes? Are you, are you making yourself available to the prompts of the Holy Spirit? Are you making yourself available to ministry opportunities or church needs? Thirdly, initiative. If you have ever been in a parenting world and you're trying to get your kid to do something because you know it will be good for them, you want initiative. Because you're like, trust me, you'll thank me later. I mean, for years I was trying to get my son to play guitar and it was sort of like, oh, I don't want to practice. I don't want to practice. Well, now he's in college. Playing guitar is a pretty cool thing to do, right? I mean, that's, that's a funny example, but what I'm talking about is if you've ever felt like oh, I'm trying to pull them along or I'm trying to keep up. When we come with Christian faith and we're taking initiative to confess, to grow, to volunteer, to serve, to come alongside. I mean, if you've ever received meals in a care calendar, you should be the first to sign up for the next care calendar. That's just how that thing works. Because if strangers deliver something to your door, you should be like, dang, that was really nice, and they don't even know us. I ought to do that. I mean, this is how initiative. And then um, fourthly, the, the, the T is, is um, teachable. Is there a defensiveness? Is there a sort of resistance? Or are we allowing people to speak into our lives? Can there be a challenge offered without sort of a pullback? I want to have a teachability. I want to hear what people are saying, and it's not always here, but it's something I want to pray about. And I have my own criteria for how to evaluate the motives behind someone, you know, challenging me or whatever, but teachability, and especially when I was 22 and 23, I had a lot of things that, um, frankly, authority issues that needed to be broken. And then the last thing I would simply say is helpful. When you're a family, be helpful. That's the message I'm telling my kids, hey, you are fully capable of moving your dishes to the dishwasher. You, you know what? That light isn't a light for me telling me to empty it. You can do that. It's amazing how helpful you can be. The church is the same way, and it runs the same way. In fact, um, we hired Dalen, and I'm excited to have him come because it expands what we get to do. But the role of the pastor is to train in the the saints for the work of the ministry. So Dalen's job isn't to do all the setup of the chairs or to bring out all the sound system. But that's largely been what we've been doing for the last three years. And so I've got to ask you to think about it differently because if I'm doing it, I'm not doing my job properly. And you go, I've got kids. It's a Sunday afternoon. It's interrupting nap time. I'm like, um, I know, but our job is to train and equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and sometimes we just got to love one another differently. So we need more help, and we need more responsiveness. Some of you need to participate more in financial giving. Some of you need to participate more with your time. 
we're fine, we're doing well. But if we're gonna grow, and if you're gonna have any kind of fitness plan, it says it requires, love is like that. It costs me something. Just like I wanna, learning how to love like God loves. So the vow that I want you to start praying about over the next few weeks as we come to February 7th, I wanna think about this, and I framed each of these as an inward, outward, and an upward vow that we're gonna take together if you like. It doesn't mean if you don't take the vow, you know, you get voted off the island. That's not what that means. But what I'm saying is I want to kind of formalize what we're already doing and, and invite you to a deeper level of consideration because the goal is just being resolved to love. And so I've kind of made this covenant, like what it means to be in, uh, in community, to love one another better, to love your faith family more. And so we talk about community. And I'm just simply asking the question, how will you contribute to the good of the church family? Do you have sort of a measurable way? I think every person who calls themselves a, a member or in covenant should say, oh, this is my ministry at Mission Hills Church. I do a lot of other things, but this is my ministry. And then the, the, the second thing is, is apprenticing, is and this is kind of a double-edged sword. I think we all need to evaluate kind of the growth areas of our life and say, who are you following? Is there someone that is further along in their journey that you're looking to learn from and be in ministry with? Because discipleship is more than a transfer of knowledge. It's actually doing stuff. And then secondly, who are you intentionally bringing along for the journey? Now, if you're a parent, you're already apprenticing, but you might be apprenticing your cynicism or your doubts or your fears, your lack of priorities, hopefully you're also instilling in them your convictions, um, you, you know, generosity, hospitality, a worldview that involves Christ at the center of it. There's all of these things that we want to do, but we have to be thoughtful about how we steward our influence, both in the giving and the receiving aspects. So this vow towards being in community, to love one another, is something that I want you to begin praying with. One of the immediate things I would say is you can get online tonight and you can volunteer with signing up for our, our children's ministry. That's not something that's always fun and easy. You saw how many kids just left. By the way, no guilt or shame, but let's just be real. My wife's in graduate school and she works a full-time job and she's leading the children's ministry and playing on the worship team. I hate when I see her go back there. I'm just asking for you to step up and be involved in those things. Bandwidth. We're all fighting for it, right? But we're choosing to love. Love without keeping score. And so this is what God's doing in my own heart. This is what God's, I think, inviting us to participate, say, I want to love in the most practical and tangible ways. There's a way to love uh, and do that. I would love for you to come early with your family because I don't want to disciple consumers. Most of you have grown up in a church where someone already had it all set up, the temperature was set, the chairs were set, the lighting was set, and you got to arrive. But what if your kids got to grow up in a church where they saw, oh, we set up chairs and we pray as we go through, and I'm praying today as I'm setting up each chair what I want God to speak through. And I'm praying for who I know isn't coming, who I hope is coming, who I've invited. But what if we just had a little prayer time and you and your kids got to see what it's like 
to prepare a place in advance for others. I don't want to make a setup team sort of a, a manual labor team, although it involves manual labor. But there's something neat about a new perspective, about how we host and serve one another. And this is what I'm inviting you further into to consider as you choose to walk in covenant with Mission Hills Church. So what I want to do, speaking of covenant, we have this beautiful thing called communion. And uh, as we go and, and continue our time of worship tonight, I want to pray uh, and, and just kind of settle our hearts. I want to go into a time of examination. Um, and so I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads uh, and close your eyes. And as we consider these words, I know I've said a lot tonight. Um, and I'm speaking from a place of abundance, not scarcity. I'm speaking from a place of love um, and not desperation. I hope you hear that. But my pastor's heart is inviting you into next steps. And love always costs something. We have never tried to hard sell giving. We have never tried to hard sell volunteerism because I'm just inviting you to take the initiative for next steps. But as a pastor, I want us as a community, like the ancient Hebrews, to have this sense that God is inviting us to resolve in our home, we are gonna love one another. So God, as we come before you now, as we just prepare our hearts for this communion table, I pray that you would just help us to examine the unsurrendered areas of our lives where we have a hard time trusting you. Would you reveal maybe a name, a face that needs to be confessed as contempt? Would you just encourage us and remind us of how you've provided for us and how the church has come alongside. Will you do in us that which we can't just do alone? But I pray that we would really continually be stronger together. Father, I pray that you would shape a sense of gratitude in our hearts for what you've done how you've been faithful and you're always so available and how you've pursued us. Pray that we would just hunger for you. Speak to us now about what it means to love like you love. As we prepare our hearts for communion, we give you this time. Surrounds me 
All my dreams undone I can hear you calling Come That I will come While you sing over me When the night would hide my way I will listen until I hear you say How I love you, child, I love you How I love you, child, I love you How I love you How I love you, child, I love you How I love you, child, I love you So how do we steward God's love in us other than give it away? Give it away. And I, I can't help but not emotionally go there on the night that Christ was to be betrayed. He's breaking bread in front of people that he was so invested in. And he goes, you're going to deny me. You know, you're going to sell me out. I'm going to be on that cross alone. You're not going to be within eye shot. And I'm like, and he just... He just kept loving. And I'm like, it's such a powerful thing. And so when we come to this communion table, we're reminded of all those things, that sort of scorecard that we keep. God's like, I know, I know, but come to me. And he says, so he took the bread and he broke it. And he, and he broke it with the sense like, I get brokenness. I get broken dreams and I get broken relationships and I get broken expectations. I get broken down body. I get it all my body, willingly, lovingly, broken for you. And then he brings this cup along. It's like, it's like you can't talk about the tomb without the resurrection. You can't talk about the forgiveness of sin without talking about the resurrection. And he says, this, this is the cup. It represents new life. This is the new covenant. You already are. You already are loved. Now steward this cup. Give this life-giving source to other people. And he's entrusting us with this great and precious gift. And it's overwhelming. It's, it's convicting. And yet, I need it. I need it. So as often as you break of this bread, drink of this cup. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. So I'm going to encourage you during this time, if you want to take a little more time for prayer, you can. But just to kind of funnel through the line and then come back to your seat, we're just going to turn this into a little extended time of prayer and worship as Hal and Gail have agreed to serve us communion this evening. Go as you're ready.